One of those passages that I cannot read without hearing the song in my head is in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And so we're going to play that song this morning, and as we do, uh, we're going to, I think, have the King James Version of the words on the screen for you. Now, if you want to sing this with us, you can, but this is actually recorded as the oldest song or lyrics that is still in, actually the oldest song recorded, I believe it was, wasn't it, Nathan? Yeah, the, the oldest lyrics. Oldest lyrics actually recorded. recorded. Because historians, and there's not agreement amongst us, but that's okay, the general theme is, or idea is, that Solomon wrote these, these words thousands and thousands of years ago, back in the BC era, and that in the 1950s, a musician took them and put them into a song that we hear. And actually, as you look at the lyrics or you look at the words in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8 on the screen and consider them, the... The writer, the author of the song, all he did is moved a couple of different lines around. But for the most part, he quoted, he totally ripped Solomon off and wrote a Grammy award-winning song. The song's called Turn, Turn, Turn. I'm going to switch back to this microphone. We're going to do our best not to butcher this song. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to laugh, a time to Everything turn, turn, turn. There is a season turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to build up, a time to break down, a time to dance, a time to mourn, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. A time of love, a time of hate, a time of war, a time of peace. A time you may embrace, a time to read. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to gain, a time to lose, a time to rent, a time to sow, a time for love and for hate, a time for peace. I swear it's not too
Well, I want to thank the band for going with the flow. Nathan and I knew we were doing that, but they came in this morning, and I think Preston knew. Uh, but if they didn't look at the set list, they came in and were shocked that, hey, we're going to play this 1960s song this morning. But I really appreciate that that song is so close to the text. I like things that help us to remember um, the text of Scripture. And one of the things that really jumps out at me about that song is, is the way the song is not just cyclical in the lyrics, right? That you continually cycle back to that, that refrain that we see in verse one of chapter three of Ecclesiastes. But if you follow the, the melodic structure of the song, there's this clear rise and fall that happens in the song. It does a good job of melodically representing the truth of how we experience life and what the passage itself is trying to communicate to us, right? There's the time for this and a time for that, a, a season when we're high and a season when we're low, and we consistently cycle through these different seasons. I do want us to look again at the passage as we walk through it this morning. And we're tying in with the idea of dust to dust, dust and ashes, right? Last Wednesday, or the Wednesday before last, we, were, we did our, our Ash Wednesday service, and we pointed back to Genesis last Sunday with the consequences of the curse, where we were created with special intent and, and special intimacy, but because of our sin, we were separated with God. That, that relationship was broken, and we ended, we ended with hope, Right? That even in the midst of the curse, that God declares the coming restoration through a promised one. That there would one day be one that would destroy the serpent, but would stand strong in the end. We're going to continue walking through that idea. And this week, interestingly enough, Solomon is going to end his, his little thesis, his micro-thesis that he's writing here in the midst of his research project. He's going to end it with that idea of dust to dust. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 if you haven't already. And it is going to sound a little bit different than the song we sung because it is in the NIV and not the good old King Jimmy. It says this, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to just give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil, Solomon asks. I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever forever. 
Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. And God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits both of them. As one dies, so does the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the, human, if the spirit of the animal goes downward into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Now I confess that we are looking at just one little subset of what is an entire research report that Solomon is doing. But, but Solomon's entire premise of the book of Ecclesiastes, I always thought that the book of Ecclesiastes reads like an adolescent diary. Because my, my guy is like complaining about everything. Here he is, the most wealthy man on the planet. He, God has given him all wisdom and all wealth besides that, and the guy is infinitely unhappy. He's like, I've got all this stuff, and I'm looking at the world trying to figure out what matters most, and my, my, my ultimate end is this, that everything is meaningless. Not exactly what you want to hear from the wisest man that ever lived. And here in the middle, he gives us a snapshot of, of part of his, his research, what was going on. And he tells us, he communicates to us something that we inherently know that we have experienced for ourselves. And that is this, that life is a cycle of seasons. Life is a cycle of seasons. We, we know this to be true, right? We didn't need to come in this morning and, and read Ecclesiastes 3. As a matter of fact, we've experienced it in all of its terror in the last three days, right? On Thursday, it was like 70. And then yesterday, it was like negative 65 outside. We're from Indiana, Solomon. We understand the reality of seasons. Sometimes we experience four of them in a day. I think today it's supposed to be in the 60s, isn't it? It's utterly ridiculous. But Solomon tells us, he starts the, this section in the middle of his study that he's doing and he tells us there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. Now two words are used for time in this text particularly in verse one. The, the first word is rightly rendered time. So if you look at verse one in the NIV in particular, it says there is a time for everything and a season for every activity. In that verse, the words are rendered exactly as they are in the Hebrew. Now, both of them carry the idea of time, right? Right? 
One of them, time, indicates a moment. It's punctiliar. That in this moment, in this space and time, right now, I am going to do this thing or experience this thing. The other is a period of time in which we experience those things. Interesting translative note. Now, both words work in the English, but one is better than the other. The Hebrew word used throughout verses 2 through 8 that is translated time is actually the the word in verse 1 that is translated season. Now, I'd have no idea why translators do what they do. They are smarter than I am for the most part. But in this case, I don't love the decision. Because the idea that that Solomon is communicating is not just a passing moment that we're in, but that, that we deal with periods of time, stretches, right? War is not a moment in time, right? War doesn't just happen and one day there's war and the next day there's not. There's, there's a buildup and, and there is a crescendo to a climax and then hopefully there is a, a bringing down of hostilities and then the hope is that there's a time of peace that follows it. We don't, it's not just punctiliar moments, but they are seasons. And the reality is if we look at what's going on and what Solomon describes, they are more rightly seasons. If we look in verse one, they they are seasons of life and seasons of death. Birth may be a moment, right? Birth is something that happens at a moment. The child is born, but you are living in a season that comes with that in general. There's a season of potential and joy, right? There's There's a season of new life that you live in and a season of excitement, a season of great joy. Well, we we could say that the same thing happens at the end of life, doesn't it? That there's often a season of, of mourning. There's a season of loss. Uh, We all wish that it was just a moment, that we feel it now and then we move on tomorrow, but that's not how we work. Normally there's a leading into it, it happens, and then there's a season leading out of it before we can find. We have entire groups that meet here because they're seasons of grief. We've got to learn how to deal with it. Solomon's talking about seasons. The same thing is true. Seasons of planting, right? No one really cares about the planting. I mean, it's great in spring where we plant the things, but but we're not really that excited about putting the seed in the ground, are we? What are we really excited about? The new life that's going to come with it, right? And the produce that it's going to come. But ultimately, that that produce and that season of life is going to lead to a season of harvesting. And then that's going to lead to what here in southern Indiana? Six months of looking at dead brown fields and seasonal depression. It's a season. It's not a moment. And each of these these polar pairs, we'll call them, in verses 2 through 8, are on opposite ends of the spectrum. One is decidedly good and positive. The other, we would say, is more distinctly negative and a struggle. One is something we would look forward to, and the other is something that we lament. So the first is life and death in verse 2. Verse 3, it's seasons of deconstruction or destruction and construction. Now, if we look at the text, he says there's a time to kill and a time to heal. We, we, could, we could argue that, that to kill and to heal, heal are not exactly opposites. But if you think about them in a process, in a season, in something that you work towards, they are, are they not? That you can kill someone slowly, 
Killing in this instance is not talking about the moment of death, but the breaking down and degradation of quality of life that leads to death. Whereas healing is the opposite of that, is it not? That healing rather than breaking down a body and bringing a life towards an end is building it up so it can continue on. Healing is distinctly positive, whereas, whereas killing, we would say, is negative. Same thing is true with, with building and construction. There's a time to tear down and a time to build up. Well, again, we're experiencing that in real time. You can look out front and see it, right? We've been tearing those steps down. The steps themselves have been breaking down. And finally, we looked at them and said, you know what? It's time to tear that mess down so that we can build something else up. And I'm here to tell you that watching those men do the concrete work is, is awe-inspiring. It's what, I can't tell you how much time I've killed sitting out here just watching them sling their saws and, and smooth out the concrete. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at the things that they've done and said to, to Aaron or Nathan, like, well, that's dumb. I don't think I'd do it that way. And then they shift something and I'm like, well, I'm an idiot. I didn't see what was going on here. That, but there was a time to tear down and there's a time of construction. The tearing down was necessary because it was negative. There were, there were adverse effects happening because the steps had been there for years and years and years for longer than Miss Sharon has been playing the piano. And it was time to take those stairs down so that she didn't fall and hurt herself as she continues to play the piano. So we had them nicer. Isn't that right, Sharon? We needed nice steps out there. And so we're, we got the steps coming in. We got the building up. Then we see seasons to weep and to laugh. Seasons to mourn and to laugh. These are emotional things, things that, that touch into our feelings and the way that we feel during various seasons. These seasons are self-evident. We've experienced seasons of sadness and seasons of joy. Seasons of mourning and seasons of celebration. Then he says seasons to gather and scatter stones and to embrace and refrain from embracing. Anyone else hear that one and say, what in the world is he talking about? I know I did. I was like, what does that mean? I was reading through it and I'm thinking, I, I sure hope some commentarian is going to explain this mess because it makes no sense to me. Well, in biblical times, if you were upset with someone, and this one does make sense, you would throw stones at him. It was a weapon, Right? So you, or if you wanted to make things difficult for them, though, that was part of what they say in the commentaries that, that the throwing of stones, that you're scattering stones, you're throwing stones. I'm mad at you, you're a jerk, and I want to do you harm. Rock to the head, right? That, that's the idea. But there's also, it could be that I'm upset with you and I want to stop you from growing crops. So I take stones and I scatter stones around your field, making the work all that much harder. Well, then you have the converse of that, the other side. Gathering of stones could mean things, that two things. Well, that person has stones in their fields and you feel bad for them, you wanna help them. So you go and you gather stones together to make that field usable. Even more prevalent is the idea that perhaps they're gathering together stones as, as a reminder of their peace. If you look throughout the Bible, you see times where if they are going to have a time of peace or they make an agreement, they would build an altar. Well, what is an altar other than a gathering and stacking of stones? It would be a stack of stones reminding them that we are in right relationship with one another. Same thing goes with embracing or refraining from embracing. They, that makes sense to us that, that there's, I'm gonna keep you at an arm's distance because I'm upset with you or I'm going to embrace you and bring you close because we are in a, a loving relationship and connection. Verse six, there's seasons 
to search and seasons to give up, seasons to keep and seasons to send to goodwill. Focuses on possessions. Can be a struggle sometimes to know when it's time to hold on to something or when it's time to let something go, when it's time to pursue a project or it's time to let a project die. Sometimes you just have to own the fact that those pants are never going to fit you and they're never going to come back to this in style and you need to let them go. I feel the Lord wanted me to say that to someone this morning. You can let those pants go today. Seasons to tear and to mend, to be silent and to speak up. Tearing or rending one's garments was a sign of mourning. Repairing them was a sign that things were once again right. Silence was expected during times of mourning. Speaking up was something that you would do when the time of mourning had ended. It's going on with life. Verse 8 talks about allies and enemies, that there's a season for love and hate, season for peace and war. Now, I want to give a brief caveat on this one because Jesus changes this. Jesus tells us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, just as Christ himself did, right? While we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. But there is something for us to remember even as Christians in this era. There is a time for us to stand firm and have the argument. There are hills worth us dying on. And sometimes we just need to step off the hill. I will argue with you and I will submit to you this morning that we as the church today do not do a good job of discerning between the two. We are way too willing to die on hills that do not align with Calvary. Solomon says, we've got to discern this. There are seasons for both. Seasons to stand firm. Seasons to, to recognize that we are in hostilities and we are in opposition. And signs to, there are times to, seasons to come to the table and make peace. And I would say once again, that Paul makes it pretty clear that we are to live at peace with all people in so much as it depends on us. There are seasons for both, but can we just say that the New Testament is pretty clear that as Christians, we are to bend much more towards grace and peace than war. The truth is we look at all these things and we understand the reality of it, that life is a lot to handle sometimes, isn't it? I like to think of it as a roller coaster, right? If you've ever ridden a roller coaster, you go and you get on the ride and at the beginning you're full of anticipation and excitement and the ride starts and you go up the first hill and you drop and you're like, woo! And then you hit another curve and you're like, woo! And you hit another curve and you're like, woo! <laughs> eventually those curves start rattling you back and forth and your stomach starts saying, this is not awesome. And you start say, going from saying, woo, to whoa! And you get to the end of that roller coaster sometimes and all you can think is, I want off of this ride. It is making me dizzy and it is making me sick. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at the reality of my life and the way that it rises and falls in different seasons and I think, this ride is making me sick. 
Anybody else like that or everyone else's life is just a consistent rise to the top? I mean, I, I just know that there's rises and falls and I struggle with it sometimes. These back and forth seasons, whether it's the weather outside or the reality of the feelings in my heart or the, the relationships that I'm in or the, the projects that I'm working on or whatever it is, the reality is there's a lot of back and forth and it's easy for us to look at all and say, why? It's easy for us to begin looking for relief, straining to understand what in the world is God doing? Is he just guessing and throwing arrows out there and hoping he hits something? Or is there some kind of plan and purpose to all these things that I'm facing in life? What's God trying to accomplish through it all? Where is God? Well, if we go on beyond verse eight, we see that, that Solomon has couched in here an understanding that's important for us. And it's this, that God is present and active in every season. We, we may not see it in the moment, right? We may not understand exactly what the outcome is that God is trying to move us towards. But the reality is we can trust that God had a plan when he put the world, back to, put the world together back in Genesis, Right? When God created the world and started it spinning, there clearly was intent and design to that. And we live in a world that is beautifully and wonderfully made that God keeps in order. God clearly has a plan and is keeping things moving on schedule. He's involved. And, and we know from the New Testament that if God were to take his hands off, everything would go into chaos. We can look back and see God has a plan. We can look forward and see, even though we may not understand where it's going, we know from the Bible that God has a plan. He's got a direction. He's moving history. The thing that's difficult is for us to see it in the shifting seasons we're living in. But God is there. It's tempting during the drama and trauma of this world to see life as a burden. Something for us to recognize is the poem in verses one through eight are not a celebration of life. That's what we want to think of it as. And that's, that's what the birds did with the song is they made it this, this poem that yes, has a reality of the difficulty of life, but ultimately ends with the hope of it's not too late. There's still hope for this world. That's not Solomon's point. He is, he is trying to unemotionally remove himself from the situation and just say, this is the data. And he's really lamenting the difficulty of life. God has made everything appropriate in its due season, but he's neglected to explain the purpose of that appropriateness to us. Solomon essentially says, as we get down to verse nine through 11, life is hard. What in the world is God doing? Verses nine through 11, what do workers gain from their toil? What do I get out of this? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in his time, but he's also set eternity in the human heart, but no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Paul Simon captured the essence of the words of verse 11 in his song, Slippin' Slidin' Away. He writes, God only knows 
God makes his plan. The information's unavailable to the mortal man. Verses 12 through 13 give us the oft-repeated conclusion of Solomon's little research project. It's some version of be happy and do good, eat, drink, and be merry. Whatever God sends your way. Solomon's, Solomon's end is, look, God's gonna do what God's gonna do, so make the best of whatever situation you find yourself in. Ain't nothing you can do about it. Ain't nothing you can do to fix it. So figure out a way to find happiness whatever season you're in and whatever you're facing. Again, not a very encouraging prospect. Because think about it again. Here's a man who has everything. Like if he wanted to eat it, he could get it. If he wanted to drink it, he could get it. No shortage of supplies. And in all of that stuff that he had, all of those available things in the world, all the best the world has to offer, Solomon looks at it and says, hey, I tried everything the world has to offer to make one happy. And what I found is this, that it's all meaningless. It all falls short. And then Solomon gonna tell us, poor people, find a way to be happy, whatever you're facing. Solomon was a jerk. God's plans are inevitable. We can't add or subtract from it. It's God's world. And we're just living in it, Solomon essentially says. But Solomon never seems to ask what I think is an important question, at least not to this point in his research project. And the question is this can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? Yeah, he's there. Yes, God has a plan and we don't know it. Yes, God is going to do what God is going to do and we need to find a way to live and find contentment in that. But he never really asked the question, can God be trusted in this? Are God's plans random and without forethought? Or is there in fact a higher purpose to the blessings and burdens we face in our lives? The reality is that even the greatest of blessings will turn to ash on us if we pursue them outside of the plan and the will and guidance of God. It seems to me that part of Solomon's conclusion is that there is a plan, even if God only knows, that God's in control and that he's to be respected and revered or feared, as Solomon says, and that that's what God is trying to do. He is trying to put the fear of God into us through his capricious controlling of all the things that we face. You know, I think one of the issues though that we have to recognize, that, that we, we have to understand as we read the text, as Solomon is making these assessments and, and making these statements, is that Solomon was known as a man who did not have a whole heart for God. Solomon is known as a man, he's known as, as being a womanizer. He had, he had some 700 wives and 300 concubines, which means that he had 700 official wives and 300 wives that were like kind of, eh, kind of. And these wives all came from different cultures and, and they had different religions. And in order to keep them happy, look, look no, I, I love Robin and she's great, but I have a hard time keeping one woman happy. I can only imagine how hard it is to keep a thousand happy, right? When Solomon write, writes that, that 
to live in a house with a nagging woman is like a dripping faucet? Like how many dripping faucets that that dude have to have? He, for being the wisest man in all the world, in all of history, he made some really dumb choices. You've got to wonder as he's writing this, as part of what he's writing, is, is part of this an expose or an explanation of the purposelessness and the struggles that we're going to find in every season when we go and pursue happiness and meaning on our own. When we try to pursue it by what this world has to offer rather than pursuing what God has given and promised. Is that not the reality of what Adam and Eve faced in the garden when they sinned? Everything was good. Remember we talked, God gave infinite numbers of yeses. You could eat anything and go anywhere and you could do it buck naked without any concerns in the world. And one no, one thing that God says, this is the one line not to cross. Do not eat this fruit on this tree and what's the one thing that Adam and Eve choose to do? They choose to eat the one fruit that God said, don't eat this. Well, here, is Solomon not following their example? Well, that fruit didn't do it for him, but maybe there's something else we can pursue. And what, 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 gift, what gift did the fruit give to Adam and Eve? Was it not the knowledge of good and evil? Wasn't it a, a newfound sense of understanding and independence that there were some things that God was maybe withholding from us that were in fact, God was saying was not good. And now Solomon's saying, well, look, I'm just gonna try it all. I'm gonna try everything in this world and see what can make me happy. And Solomon comes back and he says, look, it is all meaningless and all of these seasons will turn to ash and dust on us if we go and we pursue what is good in our own power, through our own might and through our own understanding. In verse 16, I think Solomon actually makes what we could call a backhanded type of, of confession. Verse 16, he says, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I find this interesting because what was Solomon's position in Israel? Open question, someone tell me. He was the king. So who is the primary person responsible for making that, sure that judgments are just and right? Is it not the king? Does the buck not stop with him? So if Solomon is passively saying, look, I looked out there and I recognized that where the seat of judgment was, there was wickedness. And where there was supposed to be justice, there was wickedness. One might imagine, and it doesn't directly say this, but I don't think it's far off, that Solomon's looking in the mirror saying, I know me. I know me. We can even look through the history of, Sol of Solomon in the Bible, and we can see the fact that Solomon did some things that were extremely wicked, that Solomon did some things that were incredibly unjust. And Solomon's saying, look, I've seen it all. When we do our own thing, there's incredible wickedness even where there's supposed to be justice and judgment. Solomon notes, we're, we're all accountable for our actions. Genesis 3 told us that. You know what you eat from it, you'll die. 
We saw those consequences in Genesis 3. Romans tells us that the wages of sin are death. We are accountable. And Solomon tells us in verse 17 that, that God is going to bring about ultimately judgment to the righteous and the wicked. And there will be a time to judge every deed. Commentor, commentators seem to think that, that Solomon actually is phrasing this as more of a, is this really true? Because he's seen the way that the unjust get away with their crimes and he's seen the way the wickedness makes its way into what should be righteous judgments. And so he's wondering, will God actually hold me accountable? Will he hold us accountable? I think Solomon, just like us, knew that his comeuppance was coming if he did not get right. I mean, I do wonder if Solomon in this is not struggling with the consequences of his own sinful actions. And it's true that by the grace of God, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven of our sins. But the reality is that though we may not face the consequences of our sins for eternity, we do feel them right now on earth, do we not? Seasons of broken relationships because of poor choices. Seasons of mourning because of the wrongs of others. Seasons of death and destruction because of harm that has been wrought upon us or by us. And we will feel that in this lifetime in very real ways. We can do what we want and pursue what we think will bring us peace and happiness. But we also have to accept that there are consequences to our actions. That when we fail to be faithful and to follow the plan and path that God has placed before us in his word, the seasons will be much more difficult and dark. Solomon's laying that out for us, and he reminds us at the end that from dust we have come, and to dust we will return. But what happens thereafter is to the Lord's discretion. It's true, Solomon is making the argument that humanity, we as people, need to remember our place in the order of things. That God is God and we are not. That God is the one who orders the cosmos and keeps things moving forward and we don't get to tell God what to do. We can make requests known, but God is the one with the plan and God is one, the one that will see it in action. And Solomon suggests to us in verse 18 that God is testing us to remind us of our place. Perhaps you felt that way in your life, that you've been in a, a struggle, a season of struggle, and you thought to yourself, is this a test? Is God testing me? I often feel like my own life is often a series of multiple choice questions with the occasional long form essay. And I struggle sometimes to figure out what exactly the right answer is. But the question is, is this a test? And apparently Solomon would say the answer is yes, it is. That all of life is a test. 
We can actually see that in in other places in the Bible. We could look in Job 40, verse 15. God is responding to Job at the ending of his time of testing and God reminds him that humans and animals were both created on the same day, that they both answer to God and not vice versa. In Daniel 4, God reduces Nebuchadnezzar back down to earth and, and causes him to live as an animal for a period of time to humble him. In Psalm 49, 12, we're reminded that as great and wealthy as we may become, we perish just like the animals. It highlights exactly what Solomon is saying here. We live and we die just like the animals, breathing the same air and returning to the same dust that they do. Now, I, I would, if we're gonna take Solomon exactly as his word, I would struggle with the idea that the same breath is in our lungs because clearly we can look in Genesis and see that the breath that God breathed into humanity was different than the way that God breathed breath or gave breath to the rest of creation. But for the sake of his argument, he's just saying we breathe the same oxygen. And when we stop, we die just like they do. We have no control and we are ultimately at the mercy of God. Seeking happiness through our own efforts alone will always ultimately leave us empty. And Solomon's solution, his conclusion is woefully inadequate as his own research had found out. He notes in verse 22, so I saw there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot for who can bring them to see what will happen after them. Solomon says, you might as well just accept it because it is what it is. Find a way to find happiness in whatever it is because you can't change it. His conclusion is one of resignation, not of rejoicing. And he misses the point. The only way to find peace, purpose, and true lasting joy is seeking and serving God in every season. Come what may, it's not just seeking happiness in that season, but it is understanding that God is there and God is good no matter what we are facing and seeking God in every season, whether it is a time of life or a time of death, a time of birth, a time of the end of life, a time of mourning, a time of gladness, whatever season, we need to seek God. And it is when we fail to seek God in those seasons that we assure our destruction. Here's where Solomon ultimately lands in his research project in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. He says, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. His response is sort of rigid and ritualistic, but he's in the right ballpark finally. You're never gonna find meaning and purpose living your life by your own standards and according to your own desires. You will only find meaning and purpose if you live according to the life that God has called you to. I think the prophet Isaiah says it even better. And we'll end with this. Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways, declares the Lord. 
As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from the heavens and do not return without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be the Lord's, for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Isaiah says, look, God has plans that you can't possibly understand and they are beyond your ability to comprehend, but they are good plans and you need to seek God while he may be found. Seek God while you have time. Follow God while you live this life because it's only then that you will find forgiveness. It is only then that you will be able to abandon your selfish ways of seeking and, and selfish living. And God can be found in every season. And in the Lord, as we seek him, we find mercy, we find forgiveness, we find joy, and we find peace. We find that our seasons have meaning, and even seasons that are burdensome become seasons of blessing. When we seek God, we find him. And he turns our seasons of dust and mourning into beauty and gladness. Next week, we will look at God's call for repentance in our lives and what God desires to help us experience the turnaround and to bring about new meaning and life into our lives. Will you pray with me as we conclude? Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, I thank you for your great love with which you've loved us. God, I pray that you would be with us as we go through our day. Lord, be with us as we celebrate with Miss Sharon today, as we recognize 50 years of faithful service through many different seasons. God, I pray that, that you would bless her today, Lord, as in the ways that she's, for the way she's blessed us. God, help us to seek you and find you and to follow you all the days of our lives. Provide us joy and sorrow Provide us celebration even in the midst of sadness. Give us purpose and understanding even when our minds don't comprehend. God, may we be people of faith that follow you, understanding that though we don't know, you do. Though we can't find meaning, you will provide it in the end. God, work and move in our lives according to your plan and purpose in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.